This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. Good afternoon, Marissa Lennox in for Libby Snymer this week. It's good to have you along this hour. We begin with news of that healthcare transfer deal. After months of tenuous negotiations and mudslinging, federal and provincial leaders signaled over the weekend that the end is within reach, with some premiers, including Ontario's Doug Ford, saying they would even be willing to accept some of the federal government's conditions on the funds, conditions like metrics and data collection. Now, the premiers are looking to meet in Ottawa next month in the hopes that this new money would be reflected in the upcoming federal budget. So it sounds like good news, but of course, the devil is always in the details. Who decides what? Will the new funds come in the form of a lump sum, or will it be distributed over a period of time? In the end, how much will be agreed to? And how about those strings attached? It is Monday, so the Zoomer squad is here. We'll be talking about this and a number of other headlines from over the weekend. But as always, we want to hear from you. So let me give out those numbers. 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-744-740. All right, let's bring in the panel. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Policy Officer at CARP on the line. Hey, Bill. Hello, Marissa. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And in studio, we have Anthony Quinn, Chief Community Officer of CARP, and Peter Muggridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. It's good to have you both here. Hi, Marissa. Hi there. All right, Bill, I'll begin with you. The Federal Health Minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, said on Friday that he was very optimistic that a deal would be reached within a matter of weeks. To be clear, the provinces have been calling on the feds to increase the share of their health care funding from 22% to 35%. So I'll start with your reaction to the news. Well, uh, good news. Hopefully, fingers crossed that uh, uh, the promises will will come and that uh, there will be more money coming into health care. Uh, Canadians, especially uh, our CARP members, are not looking for uh, uh, getting involved in the argument about who should pay what. What they're interested in is how are we going to get more money into the system so we can get the health care we deserve. CARP Anthony has a good pulse on public opinion, and I have no doubt you hear from CARP members daily on this issue, and I don't think that that would be an exaggeration. So what are you hearing from members? Well, I think the the taxpayers are looking at themselves in the mirror and saying, I I pay provincial and federal taxes, but there's only one taxpayer. And if they're negotiating between provinces and the federal government, who's representing the patients? Who's making sure that they are being put first? I don't know why they would have to negotiate between themselves. If the goal is to improve the health care of Canadians, that, that shouldn't take negotiation. That should just take a plan. Yeah, that's a good point. Peter, you know, over the weekend, Premier Ford said he'd be willing to accept some of the strings attached to the money. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister actually described some of Ford's reforms as innovative or innovation, which is a significant change in the direction that the talks were previously going in. And so I'm wondering, you know, do you get the sense that there's some kind of mutual truce going on between them? Uh, because we all know in this room and on the line that uh, Trudeau is no fan of the P word. No. And, um, but, you know, Marissa, I think we reached a, uh, a point at the, uh, you know, last year with the, you know, the, the emergency rooms are closing and people can find a doctor and, you know, nurse burnout and resource shortages. And everyone, I think everyone realized that, you know, this, this kind of posturing, this kind of, you know, uh, little wins, little victories in negotiation has to end. And yeah. it has to be like, we, we have to solve this because, you know, we're, we're at a, we're at a real crisis point and, uh, you know, they're, they're, it, it just has to be solved. And I think everyone is realizing that. And so they're, they're being nice to each other right now. Public pressure uh, for sure. And huge. also that headline. Yeah. I mean, when somebody can die in an emergency it, room, waiting room. Yeah. Uh, like something stories has like to, that. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. You know, Bill, one of the, uh, the things that the feds have been talking about in terms of conditions, it's 
seemingly innocuous. I mean, reducing surgical backlogs, enhancing primary care, expanding mental health services, fixing long-term care homes, and the data collection piece, which I find really interesting and necessary. Is there anything in this list, this list of strings, that stands out to you as problematic? Well, uh, what's missing from the list seems to be uh, uh, home care. Uh, that uh, is really one of the huge answers to uh, all all the questions. We're never going to build enough uh, long-term care homes to keep the number of people who in the current system would need to be there. And that can only be solved by better home care, and that can only be solved by having more people to uh, deliver it. So home care and staffing or care in your own community and staffing are the uh, key issues that have to be uh, settled first. And that's where the the federal government does have a huge uh, opportunity to both set the standards and goals and also uh, change things like the immigration uh, standards and, and regulations so that we can get more people uh, into the into the system to serve the people who need that care. Anthony, I guess the risk is that there will be presumably some specific outcomes which they've not yet outlined, but that would potentially be tied to the funds. I mean, everyone wants improvements, um, but it's not just dollars and cents that are going to fix this issue. Do you imagine that being problematic? I would like to see personally, and this isn't on behalf of anyone else, that some of those federal dollars are enveloped specific to projects that that the government uh, sees uh, and that CARP is advocating for, like specific funding for long-term care and national standards on those on those mm-hmm. provisions. Uh, things like envelope money for mental health and, and not letting the provinces put it into general revenues or, or other uses that those health care dollars are actually assigned uh, in, in a way that they have to report back and, and show what they've done with that money. Peter, you know, the devil, as they say, is always in the details. And this is where it gets interesting because who decides what? Will the new funds come in the form of a lump sum or will it be distributed over a period of time? Just how much is agreed to? Where will the funds go? There will be presumably plenty of disagreement among varying provincial governments over where those dollars are allocated. Is it long-term care? Is it home care, mental health, so on and so forth? And so as someone who's been covering these stories for decades, decades, Peter, (laughs) how does this roll out? Well, you know, it, at the at the beginning of the debates, uh, you know, when it's time to renew the health transfer, there's always sort of this, you know, um, the provinces are asking for the moon and the, you know, the, the government's offering much less. And there's public posturing and there's sort of, you know, uh, you know, hard lines drawn and then, you know, people, they move a bit and then they get to the negotiating table and, and, and you know, everyone, it, it all gets figured out for the, for the uh, you know, behind closed doors and and we'll have to wait for that you know we'll have to see how much um money is on the table and how much i you know i i'm still a little bit skeptical that the provinces are going to be willing to give up that many um concessions to the federal government because they never have before it's always been a, a provincially administered system and any kind of encroachment from the federal government is um you know, always push back. So, so that that'll be it'll be most interesting to see, you know, how how much money is on the table and how much the the federal government can can pry in concessions out of the provinces because in the past they haven't really been able to do that much. Bill, will CARP engage with the provinces who will pr- presumably be responsible for distributing those funds? Will they be engaging with uh, provincial health leaders? to talk about where those funds are allocated? Certainly they will, uh, and, and CARP has been uh, uh, has been doing this, of course, as you know, for, uh, uh, for, for decades uh, <laughs> also uh, now. And because one of the problems that we deal with in CARP is the knowledge from our, from our chapters across the country that uh, services differ so differently from one province uh, to, to another, from very highs to very uh, lows. And our position has always been that your postal code shouldn't determine the level of health care that you get. We really, we really need that. And one of the things that uh, 
we certainly would support in what we've been hearing so far is that uh, data collection agreement will be part of this agreement. You know, that's been one of the big problems. Many of the provinces still don't uh, combine their uh, data in one source uh, federally. So we can actually take a look, a real look and comparison of one province uh, to the other. And uh, we've always wondered, is that because uh, they're embarrassed about what those statistics will show? Or is it because they they just don't want to take part in in being involved in anything that might eventually be controlled by the the Fed? So, you know, data collection, base information about uh, where we are now will help determine where these new dollars should go and how they should be uh, spent. And CARP will be urging the provincial governments uh, locally, our, our provincial chapters will be saying to them, uh, the feds of offering a, a bit of an olive branch uh, here, take it and uh, be positive and on board. So uh, our, our advocacy is at both levels, federal and provincial. And I think no one wants to take the blame for bad performance either. That plays a role in it, when you say? I think they take advantage of the opportunity to blame the other party and get themselves off the hook. The, the provinces will blame the federal government for not having enough right. funds, and the, the feds will say, well, we gave you enough money, but you didn't use it wisely. Mm. Peter, last question, and then we'll move on. Mm-hmm. There's been some discussion around privatization, not only in Ontario, but in Alberta and some other provinces. And yes, the private sector already does exist in healthcare. But what role do you think this discussion discussion will play in the negotiations, if at all. Do you foresee the feds, for example, withholding funds for things that they don't like? Um, and I appreciate this is pure speculation. Yeah, I, I, no, I think you're right, Marissa. And, and I think, I don't think there's, uh, it, it's not a coincidence that this announcement came out that the, you know, the, the, the transfer uh, negotiations are, are coming along well. Um, you know, just weeks after Ontario announced it was looking into private solutions for for healthcare. So I, I, I think the two are tied. Like the, I think the announcement from the federal government is is tied to Ford throwing out that you know, that bomb that that, that they're going to be um, that there there possibly might be a private solution here. And absolutely, this government will um, not allow private solutions. It, it 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 doesn't stand for that. It's you know it's partnered with the NDP, so even more. More so, you know, they're, they're philosophically opposed to any privatization of healthcare, and the, and and I'm sure you're right. They w- they will withhold funds if if that's one of the solutions provinces are using. Well, we'll wait to yeah. see. All right, moving on. According to a new study, Ontario patients did not turn to the emergency t- departments in place of in-person doctor visits. So, in other words, where we hear that more family doctors will solve the ER backlog, what this study says is that the strain is not associated. Bill, I'm not sure if I buy it, but what is your sense? <laughs> Bill, you there? Oh, sorry. I'm, I, uh, I missed the, you faded out. And I missed the question. Apologies. Sorry. I had to cough. All right. I'm not sure if I buy it, but what is your sense? Sorry, I missed the, the original statement. You know what? I'll put it to Peter first and we'll come back to you, Bill. <laughs> yeah, okay. Peter, what, you. what do you think? I, I don't know. I, I, this, this, this virtual care, I, you know, it, it seems to me it's a it was a solution that was, you know, hurried up upon during the um, pandemic when no one could go out. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's a long term solution. I think um, I think it does take the pressure uh, off off ER, no doubt. But um, you know, certainly you're not getting ideal care when you're you're talking over the phone or doing a video conference. Like the doctor can't see what what you're talking about half the time, and it's 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 there's an awkwardness to it. Um, so, so I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know where this study comes from and, and I'm not sure I, I believe its findings. Yeah. You know, it, I, I don't know that I believe it either because there's just absolutely no way that where a person does not have access to a family doctor, they don't end up in an emergency department right. if they need one yeah. in per- the middle. In, in personal experience, that, that's what happens. Yeah. And anecdotally, yeah. I've yeah. heard it well, happen before, this, but the study says that there's no relationship. Well, the source on. is the OMA. It's, it's the Ontario doctors. So they want to be able to bill full OHIP rates for virtual for virtual appointments. And this is a response oh, uh, to the provincial okay. government say, <clears throat> saying that uh, virtual appointments are just as good as in-person appointments uh, based on their doctor's assessment. 
and that they do not lead to more ER visits. That's that's the point of this, and I think they want to get that full OHIP rate for all virtual visits. So what what do you think will be the implication of this study then on virtual care? Well, right now, uh, and, and over the last two years, uh, virtual visits have gone from 4% of OHIP billings to 25%. So uh, the, the new format that the province laid out requires that you can only charge the full OHIP rate if you have seen the patient in the last two years. Mm. So this mm-hmm. virtual... Seen the person in person. In person. Yeah. In person. Yeah. So, in person, so yeah. this, this hurts those uh, businesses that are all virtual, uh, where you would yes. never see the patient in person and, and have your your virtual visits available 24-7 in some cases. So that that's the, uh, the those are the doctors that are being hurt by the changes in the billing, and, and this is a response from, the, from there. You know, Bill, I've spoken to doctors on both sides of the coin, some in favor uh, who say it is a clear way to how we clear these backlogs, and then others who say that virtual care will reduce the quality of care patients receive. What's your assessment? Yeah, well, I think uh, older uh, older Ontarians feel really caught in the middle, and that this uh, whole question is becoming uh, uh, political and not uh, not based on uh, actual experience and uh, how people are being treated. Of course, uh, and I agree with uh, both uh, uh, both Peter and and, and Anthony. There's uh, there is a place for virtual uh, healthcare, and if we can serve people uh, virtually who therefore don't uh, clog up the system elsewhere and and give them the the care that's appropriate then we'll take people out of the uh, out of the lineups and allow more people to get a care that's uh, that's face to face but a lot of us are still uh, really wondering whether virtual care will ever re- replace uh, visits face to face we keep being told uh, uh, they would be. I, I know if David Kravitz was here with us this week, he'd be telling us about all the examples of good virtual healthcare uh, around the world, especially in, in uh, North America. But uh, uh, older Canadians are saying, let's wait and see. I still don't feel comfortable unless I can have that good conversation uh, about my whole health condition with my uh, physician. And if that's what they're having, then the physician should be paid the same amount because they're giving the same, they're giving the same amount of uh, advice and, and, uh, and doing exactly what they would do in person. If they can't do what they would do in person, uh, then virtual health care isn't going to be uh, much of a solution in the long run. It's good to have disagreement among a team, isn't it, <laughs> David and Bill? All right. Earlier, we were talking about data collection um, as a condition for the new healthcare funding. And there was a report in The Globe earlier this year that found that Canada has more family doctors than ever before. But a lack of data about how and where these doctors work is actually hindering the province's ability to deal with it. In other words, currently provinces have no good understanding of how many doctors they need or where they need them, which I think is just astonishing. I'll give out the numbers one more time. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Have you or do you know someone who has ended up in a merge because of an inability to access a family doctor? I want to hear from you. Or have you had a virtual care experience? I want to hear from you. All right, moving on. Do you feel as though the city of Toronto has become an unsafe place to live? Late last week, a woman in her 70s was walking on a downtown street when she was pushed to the ground by a man in an unprovoked attack, and she later died. It seems a day does not go by without another story of a person being assaulted on the TTC um, there was also that story of a homeless man who was killed by eight mm-hmm. girls, not women. These were girls. Anthony, you live outside the city, but you commute in every day. What is going on? There's a city of four million people, and there will be uh, incidences of violence, unfortunately. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a, a higher level of reporting or people are focusing on this or if there is uh, a change in the the personality of our city. Uh I grew up uh, and spent 30 years living in Toronto and always found it to be a a very safe place. Uh, Still come into the city every day, find it safe. Uh, Violence itself is a very rare occurrence in Toronto, and our violent violent crime rates have been going down over the last number of decades. So I'm not certain that these incidences uh, tell the whole story. How did we get to this point, Peter? Well, you know, um, I'm going to disagree a bit with uh, uh, Anthony because... um, 
I live downtown and I have kids who ride the subway on a, on a regular basis. And there's, especially with my daughter, who's in her early 20s, there's a fear there that um, there, there's many more sort of mental health patients roaming around on, and they, they, in the winter, they, you know, they spend their days on the subway just terrorizing people. And not a day goes by where she doesn't have some horror story. And, there, and, and Anthony, you'll remember back in our university, there were, there were always horror stories on the subway, but, but the, the number of horror stories has increased exponentially. And there's, there's sort of, there's fewer riders. So, so these, these sort of mental health patients are standing out more and more. And, and I, and I think there, there's this real feeling, you know, uh, among vulnerable people like uh, younger women and older people that they don't want to come downtown because it, it's the the TTC has become too rowdy, you know, and so I, I would disagree with you there. What needs to be done by the city, Bill? I'll I'll put that to you, and I know you don't live here, but I I'm curious for your reaction, nonetheless, by the mayor yeah, even well, to address this. Well, I you know I I don't live in Toronto, but I do visit Toronto regularly. I have been for uh, for years, and I can I can tell you that uh, I'm afraid I have to agree with. Uh, uh, Peter, I, you know, uh, 15 years ago, I felt very comfortable uh, taking the subway, uh, uh, walking on the on the streets down downtown. Now, uh, I do not use the uh, subway. I see what Peter's describing in terms of uh, uh, being just uncomfortable with the kinds of people that are around me. Uh, the same is on the uh, on on the streets with. Uh, uh, people interacting and and the large crowds. So I can certainly understand why uh, older people in in Toronto are feeling that they're uh, that they're less safe than they uh, than they than they than they used to be. And and as a as a senior, uh, you know, it it is also uh, all part of what we're seeing is a unfortunately growing case of uh, of ageism, uh, a feeling that. Uh, Older people are not respected and cared for, cared for as they uh, as they were at one one time. It it used to be that no matter uh, who who you were, what your age was, uh, you just you wouldn't think of harming an older person, and that seems to have uh, gone by the wayside uh, now. And we can't have that confidence anymore in any large city, not just Toronto. So if you were talking to the mayor, Anthony, what would you advise him to do? I mean, he just announced an increase to the police budget, $48 million. That's a 4.3% increase. Uh, is that enough? Is this a police and crime issue? Is this a mental health issue? I think the latter. I think it's more of a mental health mm-hmm. issue, as Peter described. Uh, from, from my point of view, and looking at the statistics, uh, an older adult in Toronto was, is likely uh, – at, at in greater peril crossing the street and being a pedestrian than being a TTC rider. That's that's where the the death rates are, are high and, and that's where the accidents are happening. So I, I know that there is a concern about violence and we hear it in the media every day. But I think in actual fact, crossing the road is more dangerous than taking the TTC. Are we investing enough in mental health, Peter? I mean, you mentioned mental health earlier and I think it's a good point. We have just across the street here in Liberty Village, a supervised injection site. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Is that the kind of solution? I, I, I wonder if, if that's a solution. I, I don't think that's a solution, actually. Um, yeah, the the it, it it's not so much. It hasn't um, sort of been reflected in numbers of violence or like, but it, it's just a general perception of the the safety and security, the the comfort of living in a big city, which Toronto always had. You know, a big city, very livable downtown. That's eroding, and and that's what people are worried about. Like the. It, it, you know, people are much more fearful out there, uh, not because, you know, it, it's just the threats are, are more evident than they've ever been for, been before. And, and I think, Anthony, that's what people are worried about. Like, they're, you know, you, it's not like the, the number of people are, 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 you know, it's going through the roof, the number of people getting pushed on the tracks or getting beaten up or assaulted or, or whatever. But it's, it's the fear is definite and the threat is definite. And, and uh, it, I don't know what you do with that other than, you know, find these people and and treat them. But, but I, I don't if, know how you do that. If you, you visit know? a big city like New York or Chicago, uh, they have policemen in every corner. They have policemen right. on every subway station, every every platform. So that that might be what we hear from Mayor Tory, that that investment will go to more visible signs of police that may uh, curtail some of the fears that people have walking around the town. I feel like Torontonians are not going to like that as a solution. Bill, do you have the same issues over out in Halifax? 
Sorry, I missed you again. <laughs> Do you have the same issues out in Halifax, Bill? Oh, yes, very much so. Yes, uh, uh, all the larger cities do. I, I spend a good deal of time in, in even in, in Hamilton and, and uh, uh, find that. Uh, certainly in, in Vancouver, when I'm there, places like uh, Edmonton, it, it's, very, uh, it, it's very similar. And uh, in many cases, although you don't like to judge from, uh, from outside, it looks like a, very much a mental health issue in, in many cases of, of we have. Uh, we're just not not looking after the the uh, people who aren't able to follow the normal uh, practices of uh, society. So we do feel, and here in uh, here in Halifax, the same uh, discussion is going on about the uh, amount of uh, policing that's uh, necessary. And in in the face of the the uh, current uh, discussions around defunding police, it's very upsetting to a lot of uh, older Canadians who feel that we need more money uh, being spent to protect us, not less. All right, let's get to the lines. Joe in Etobicoke has a comment. Joe, you're on the line. Go ahead. Hey, how you doing? I'm well. How are you? Good. Listen, I, I got some kind of a solution. In England, UK, whatever, they have cameras. Where they know exactly what you're doing. There's no crime as much as here, I don't think. And they can, even if you're in a corner, they know you're doing this bad thing. I think we need cameras. We need cameras. If we can get cameras to cover Toronto, believe me, it'll, it'll, it'll soften the time. It'll soften the police. The police will have more to do. And that's what I think. Cameras. Cameras your solution. Technology. Technology is always the solution. Thanks, Joe, for your call. I see more and more cameras in my walks around Toronto. They seem to be very prevalent, maybe not to the level of London, England, but there are there are temporary cameras that go up in the city during larger events. There are permanent cameras. It, it seems whenever a crime is uh, committed, there is videotape of it somewhere. Mm. All right. We've got a few seconds left. Uh, just I'll go around the panel, get a few uh, just quick final thoughts. Bill, I'll begin with you. Go ahead. I think this is the time uh, when we're talking back to the issue of uh, of uh, federal uh, money to help the provinces. This is when our listeners need to get in touch with their local representatives and say, take this opportunity and let's get some decisions made and stop making seniors the ping pong ball between the two levels of government. Anthony. I'll concur with Bill. I think that this is a historic time. It's a 10-year deal, and we encourage both parties to get it right for uh, this this aging demographic over the next decade. Peter? I'll I'll invoke David Kravitz and and say, like, you know, it it doesn't matter how much money you throw at a problem. It's how you spend it. So the the proof will be in, in, in how the provinces actually spend this money. Exactly right. All right. Bill Van Gorder, Anthony Quinn, Peter Mugridge, it's good to have you. We'll see you next Monday. Thanks, Thanks Marissa. Marissa. All right. Coming Thanks up, a court that. has ordered Canada to repatriate four privileged Westerners who flocked to ISIS and were being held in Syria together with their families. Why? Ori Goldkind and Brian Lilly join me next to break it all down. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. Welcome back, Marissa Lennox, and for Libby Snymer today. All right, this next story is sure to ignite a lot of emotion. The federal liberals have been ordered by a federal judge to repatriate four Canadian men with ties to ISIS who are currently being held in U.S.-backed Kurdish camps in Syria. The court order comes after it was announced last week that Canada would also repatriate relatives of these men, including six women and 13 children. One of the men goes by the name of Jihadi Jack, a Muslim convert who grew up in Oxford and went to Iraq and Syria in 2014 to join the cause. The federal judge ruled that the four men are entitled to emergency travel documents from the federal government and to a legal representative to facilitate their release. How do you feel about this? I want to hear from you. The numbers to call 416 416- 416. 
360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. All right, let's bring in my panelists for their perspective. Ari Golkind, criminal defense lawyer, and Brian Lilly, political columnist with the Toronto Sun. It's good to have you both back on the program. Good to be with you. Great to be with you. All right, before I get to the topic at hand, we just had a discussion about crime in the city of Toronto seemingly going up, and I wanted to get your reaction. Ari, are you concerned? Uh, as a criminal defense lawyer, it's the greatest and happiest time of the year um, for me, with some levity to that answer. I mean, as you may know, Merce, I come on here both as a criminal defense lawyer and as a political commentator. I'm very outspoken that I think Toronto is turning into a toilet. Mm-hmm. Our country is going completely in the wrong direction, and the silent majority is far too silent about it. Crime is running rampant. The kinds of crime that concern us are increasing in their violence and their concerning as well as going down the youth um, age where you're seeing all sorts of violent crimes by those under 18 for a reason. So I think it is very concerning. It is not conservative or right-wing to talk about it. And to end my answer before you get to Brian, who writes wonderfully on this topic, mm-hmm. my prediction, Marissa, is this is not only going to get worse, it's going to get far, far worse. All right, Brian, you live in the city. How serious an issue is this from your perspective? And for that matter, what should the mayor be doing about it? There's limited things that Mayor Tory can can do about it, but it's not as if he can't act at all. I wrote about this just before Christmas, and I'll give you some hard stats. This is from the uh, Toronto Police uh, data portal where they track major crime incidents and major crimes up 32% since John Tory became mayor. They were up 17% between 2021 and 2022. And that's, uh, okay, people wrote to me when I, I published that column. They said, yes, but murders are down. Okay, murders are down a little bit. But assaults were up. There were 20,000 assaults, up 9.8%. Auto theft, up almost uh, well, more than 42%. Robbery, up 28.5%. Sexual violation crimes, up uh, 11 percent, 2,900 such crimes last year. Yeah, that's a problem. Um, you know, the, the criminal code is set by the, uh, the federal government, even bail conditions, which become problematic, are set by the federal government. But the mayor can help set the priorities of the Toronto Police Service as a member of the police board. And I, I think it, uh, it needs to uh, start maybe following what New York did years ago, a broken window theory. Don't let things slide, because when you do, it gets worse. I heard some commentators this morning saying they felt safer in New York than they did in Toronto, which says a lot. All right, we'll get to the headline at hand, which is that Canada will repatriate Britain's jihadi jack. Ari, you know, this is a court case that's been going on for years. I'll begin with sort of your reaction to the news. Well, I think the bottom line to start my answer is that we're a joke of a country. We're just a joke. It's a laughing stock that we're even spending time on this. And the one area, Marissa, and I'll get a little wonky with you for a minute, which I don't like to do, is that all of this comes down to how human beings interpret a document from 1982 or thereabouts, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That document, which was never contemplated to be used for ISIS or this kind of issue or repatriating people who have never even stepped foot in Canada, or Justin Trudeau's line, which you may remember, a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. Mm. The idea that not only does a federal court order that these um, potential terrorists are repatriated, but that a Canadian has to fly to Syria, I'm being serious about this, by the way, to help in bringing them back. Now, let me be clear. If there is somebody who was there... um, by some force or pressure, a woman, a wife, a child that was born. That's probably a bit of a different, more nuanced kind of situation. But when you have people like Jihadi uh, Jack, and that's not a misnomer, by the way, you can look at his own interviews, Mm -hmm. or you look at some of the Canadians, including women who have been forced to be brought back, who went to fight for ISIS. The idea that this is a country that can't cut bait and say, you know what? You made that decision. There are consequences to those decisions, Marissa. It ties right very nicely into the first question you asked about crime, is that we have lost the forest through the trees 
where there are consequences to people's actions and you cannot have a society where there simply are no consequences to going to fight for enemies that would love to blow up the very country that you're now seeking to save. Mm -hmm. Brian, let's focus on the four men. We'll set aside the families, the women and the children for now. These are Canadian men who, who of their own free will, chose to leave, travel to Syria, presumably not for a vacation. Do you believe Canada has a legal obligation to bring them home? I, um, I don't think so. Um, this is, uh, there are thousands of Canadians um, at various times held in foreign jails on all kinds of crimes, and we don't repatriate all of them. You sit in jail. This is a bit stranger for a couple of reasons. Uh, we'll set aside Jihadi Jack. I'll mention him in a moment. Uh, the other three, the, the Kurds have been looking to get rid of them for a long time. They said, look, these are your people. They're not our people. We captured them on the battlefield. We want rid of them. So you kind of got the Kurds trying to push them on us. And oh. you've got activists in this country uh, saying, oh, we've got to help these poor souls. So I'm not surprised that the court eventually got to this point. I'd love to read Justice Brown's decision. I haven't been able to find a, a copy of it yet online. So Ari, if you've got it, flip it to me. I'll read it. But the, I'm not shocked that we got there. But Jack Letts, I'm not even willing to call him a Canadian. Mm. He is a Canadian of convenience. He was born in the UK. He grew up there. He came to Canada a couple of times to visit family. Um, one of his parents is Canadian. You know, I was born in Canada. My parents are from the UK. I went to the UK to visit family. I could have a passport from there if I wanted it. It doesn't... Uh, you know, mean that I think the UK government should help me out if I'm in a bind. I'm a Canadian. Mm -hmm. He's a Brit. The Brits stripped him of his citizenship for going to fight for um, ISIS, something that we used to have in our law, but Justin Trudeau got rid of when he said a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. That's right. Okay, so it is the case that the Liberals then repealed the law passed by the conservatives that allowed the government to strip the citizenship of these guys. And I would argue, Brian, you know, when someone goes by Jihadi Jack, and pledges an allegiance to a terrorist group. In this case, are they not in effect re renouncing their citizenship? I would think so. Look, the uh, the Liberals did a great job uh, before the 2015 election going around and telling every immigrant community that, oh, you better be careful because if your kid's caught doing breaking any law, they can be deported and stripped of their citizenship even though they're born here. That, of course, was a lie, but it was the whisper campaign that they used it scared a lot of people and, and was probably a factor in the Liberals winning in 2015. But that law was very specific. You had to take up arms against Canada. Uh, and, you know, Jihadi Jack went there, and so did these others, while we were in the middle of fighting ISIS. We had troops there, and these people were trying to kill those troops. Ari, what happens to these individuals upon their return? Are they charged and tried? Are they brought to justice? What can we expect? So that's a great question. I want to go back after I answer that one to something Brian said that I think is a really important part of this conversation. I'm sure you have to go to break and get some callers in, but there's a word he used that I want to make sure I, I go back to. To answer your question directly, these people, including a couple of the women, have been charged with terrorism offenses when they are repatriated. A couple, one of them has put on what's called a peace bond where people theoretically keep an eye on her. I say that wink, wink, nudge, nudge, but they can be repatriated. And as soon as they land or before they do, the RCMP can charge them with terrorism offenses and they'll get whatever kiss, you know, the Canadians court uh, give them. So just bringing them back, we should not be under a misnomer that they may not be charged for terrorist-type activity, to answer your question directly. But just very briefly, Brian used a word that I think is really important here, and it's one that ties into my concern that the silent majority is just far too silent and voting for none of this. Brian used the word activists, and it's activists who succeeded in petitioning and getting these people brought back, these ISIS fighters, political Islam, Wahhabi, whatever you want to call it. We are a country that is literally run by activists on almost every single important third rail hot button issue that we could talk about today, tomorrow, or next week. There has to be some pushback to this activism, which can often find its way into the courts with interpretations of the charter 
And as I said, Marissa, there is a silent majority that if they were asked to speak about this or vote about it, the results would not be anything in line with what we're seeing. And it's very sad to me as a Canadian Mm. to have seen people lose the thread of who is Canada for, what is Canada for, and does it even stand for anything anymore? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Come on, people, I want to hear from you. And, uh, you know, before we go to break, Brian, I'll just ask you this last question. There's the intention of wanting to bring about justice. I guess, you know, if these guys do return and they are charged, but then there's the reality and the difficulty of actually prosecuting these guys. There's the gathering of evidence, witnesses, translation. What are the chances that these trials are fraught with issues? I, I would be um, uh, more, I'm, I have a greater expectation that these people are given money by the government of Canada than I expect them to be charged by the government of Canada. I'm not expecting uh, criminal charges. You're right. Very difficult. Uh, or, you know, these events took place overseas. It was a long time ago. Chain of, um, uh, you know, Evidence, all of those things are factors. But those activists that Ari and I are speaking about, they will launch a, a, a campaign to try and make sure that these people sue the government and are awarded millions of dollars, just like Omar Cotter. Mm, interesting. All right. I see our phone lines are lighting up. We need to take a quick break. We'll be right back on the other side. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. Marissa Lennox and for Libby Snymer, we're talking about Canada bringing four alleged ISIS fighters like Jihadi Jack home. And before the break, Ari, Brian mentioned Omar Cotter. He was Trudeau was badly burned when it came to Omar Cotter. That did not go over well with the public as far as I'm concerned, but you know, I'm I'm sure some will wonder, as as Brian did, if Trudeau will compensate these guys financially too. Is there is that at risk? Well, first of all, you know, and I say this, you know, if you were looking at me, I'd be smiling and saying I disagree with you with a smiley face. How was Trudeau burned? He took some heat. He called the people criticizing him his usual names. You know, a word starting with as with an I and ending in ick. I see. I don't think he was burned. He's the prime minister for as long as he wants to be. He runs this country as if 100% of people have voted for him versus 31%. So, you know, I'm somebody who thinks he's really not burnt, despite people like you, me, or Brian, or some other people will say he's not the greatest prime minister since sliced bread, and that's putting it uh, mildly. So that's my answer to, you know, whether he's burnt. Two, sure, not only will there be big checks written to these people, to Brian's point, But I think you asked, Marissa, prior to the break about funding for all of this. Mm -hmm. Well, the lawyers are going to be extraordinarily well paid by the people listening to your show. The judges, the police, the Crown attorneys, and all others will be extraordinarily well paid if and when these prosecutions get into court. Let's make no mistake about it, okay? So this is a business, and the people that seem to be most interested in this business are those who profit from this business. I, at times, am guilty of this myself, if you understand how the criminal justice system works. My point is, you now separate what are called the stakeholders, Marissa, the people who have a financial interest in this out of it. This is, to me, a pretty clear-cut situation that Canadians have strong feelings about, and I'll end my answer here. What many people listening to us right now, Marissa, don't know is just how easily somebody's citizenship can be revoked for fraud or lying on their permanent residency or on their citizenship application. Even if you've been in Canada for 20 years and you've made a life here, but you lied 20 years ago about your criminal record in Australia, your citizenship is quite possibly revoked. Now think through the story that's our headline of today, and your head sort of does a 180. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? All right, let's get to the call to uh, a caller, Simone. You are live on the air. Hi, Simone. Simone, you there? All right, we'll get back to Simone when uh, we'll try and get back her. We'll try and get her back on the line. In the meantime, um, 
How about the women and the children? Will they need monitoring, Brian? Will there be monitoring? Is that even legal? Uh, look, I think that the only victims in this are the children. Most of the stories of women I've uh, read about who decided to go and be ISIS brides knew what they were getting into, decided this was the life that they wanted, and they, they made it of their own free volition. Uh, the children, they're born into this, um, and, and you've got to be concerned about what kind of upbringing they're having when they're being raised by people who thought, yes, let's go and uh, in, in live in a society that wants to be bombed back to the 7th century because they prefer living in the 7th century and, and with the ideas that, that go with that. ISIS were a barbaric group of people um, that viewed other Muslims as not true enough if they didn't adhere to their strict, twisted view of the world. Um, this was the, this was the group that these women were joining, so they should be monitored. We should know more about them. Um, how much is going to happen? Uh, as Ari said, you know, a peace bond with a nudge and a wink and a say no more, and they're wandering around in. Uh, in the community, hopefully, they've learned and they're renouncing what they were living through before, rather than spreading it and being uh, evangelists for the the sick, twisted cause that is ISIS when they get back to Canada. Mm. Okay, let's get back to Simone because we have her back. Hi, Simone, you're live on the air. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I think I don't know if these two women will ever get a job in Canada uh, with their record. Now, they knew what the ISIS is about. They, they rape children. They, they line up people in orange suits with and stand behind them with a, 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 a knife to, to kill them. And they knew exactly. But I don't think they should come back. Their kids will probably, if they believe what ISIS did, they, their kids might be uh, taught that way and be a danger to Canada in the future. Who knows? Uh, Canada is a laughing stock of the world. Everybody, every criminal knows it's easy to commit crimes here. And that's what, um, you know, I don't believe they should be brought back. All right. Thanks, Simone, for your phone call. Sort of a bad reception there. Um, you know, w- will the authorities even be able to to follow these guys or detain these guys? I mean, what's the risk, of course, that they radicalize others or carry out attacks in Canada, for that matter, Ari? Well, so Brian answered that and followed up what I said. They're very easy to get what are called 810 peace bonds on, where they have to report their address, be subject to monitoring. That's not hard for the government to do. But as we've learned from multiple police shootings, in the last six months, when somebody's AWOL unlawfully at large or wants to disappear, that's about as easy as, you know, adding two plus two. So that doesn't give me much comfort. Here's a couple other points to your caller and to the subject. If anybody were to make the case, whether it be an activist or not, that any of these men or these women are detained improperly or that they went over there because they thought they were getting on the love boat or the Disney cruise line, and it's all a big mix-up and they shouldn't be there, nobody would have any issue with repatriating these people or bringing them back. I can tell you that nobody's making that argument because the argument can't be made. And in fact, one of the people who we often forget about has given a very on-the-record interview, and she's a woman who went over there saying she went over to kill and fight the good fight for ISIS, and she got frustrated with the life because the conditions of her hotel so to speak, weren't to her liking. She couldn't kill people on the battlefield and she was forced to sleep with multiple ISIS men and bear multiple children. So when you talk about renouncing, or I hear the word renouncing, the only time somebody renounces in this field is when they get caught or the jig is up. So the bottom line is if they're innocent and did nothing, bring them home, but you don't hear anybody yelling from the hills that anybody was dragged there against their will. And it goes back to my fundamental question, and it ties into your caller's point, which is, are we a laughing stock of the world? The answer to that is yes. And we're not only a laughing stock to the world, Britain had the temerity to take away Jihadi Jack's citizenship. But here we are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to get him back. That is insane. It's taxpayer money, not government money. Ari, has any country figured it out when it comes to dealing with terrorists that are citizens of that country? Oh, they sure have. But those are the ones that we tend to thumb our noses at and not talk about. The ones that are the laughing stocks are the Western world ones that have bent over in sort of a very different agenda of what their country should look like. And that's why the Western world is dying a very slow death and by far more than a thousand cuts. 
Brian, you know, how does this play out? I don't think there's any way that we can reverse this decision. It's court ordered. So ha- what happens next? Well, the, the prime minister was asked about it this morning, and uh, he gave an answer that made me think they're at least looking at appealing this. Uh, he was asked, actually, um, how can you say you stand by your statement that a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian when you have actually fought the uh, these men from coming home in courts? And he said, well, the court decision was just released on Friday. We'll continue to study it and we'll go from there. And I thought, okay, maybe he will fight this. Maybe he realizes that his glib answer years ago, and I remember asking him at the Monk debate, they were in the middle of... Uh, uh, he was campaigning on um, uh, getting rid of the ability to strip citizenship for people who take up arms against Canada. But there was a guy who his father had started the uh, the process to remove the citizenship from a, a an elderly Nazi. And I said, do you support that? He said, yes. I said, how is it different? They're both people that we shouldn't want in this country. He just saw the uh, the other issue as a way to win votes. I'm not sure whose vote you're winning with that. But he decided to stick with it. Now he's fighting these guys. Hopefully he sees that he was wrong. All right. Let's get to another caller. Eva in Guelph. Eva, you're on the line. Yes, I'm going to try to make it very easy, short and sweet. I agree with 100%, if not 200%, with all the two people we're talking about. Is everything they said and plus more and more. And yes, maybe they don't have any issues um, a Muslim, not Islamic extremist or terrorist, but she's a wonderful, wonderful person. But this is what they follow. That's what they believe, and they will continue doing. It's nothing you can take it away. But thank God we have people like those two people who are talking on a, on the radio. Thank you very much, and have a good day. Bye now. Thank you, Eva. You know, Ari, I think it's probably the case that there won't be a lot of sympathy for these guys from a public perspective. You know, two two things I'm sure we got to go quickly. I can't believe Brian had the temerity to say Justin Trudeau would ever give a glib answer. I, I just, it's, I, that's obviously said with some sarcasm because every answer is glib too. Sean Fraser, who's the Minister of Immigration, is looking to deport quite possibly the driver in the Humboldt attack called Jaskarat Singh Sidhu. This is a man who had one of the worst accidents in history, very little fault of his own, and if there was, it's very sad, non-intentional. So you have the immigration minister wanting to get rid of him, who wants to be a good Canadian, pay his price, pled guilty, took two seconds to plead, plead guilty, fighting to get rid of him while bringing these people back. Houston, we have a problem. All right. Well, there will be so much more on this story, and we will follow it closely. In the meantime, Brian Lilly and Ari Goldkind, it's good to speak with you. Thank you for coming on and for your time. Thank you. And that does it for us today. I'm Marissa Lennox in for Libby's Nimer. We'll see you tomorrow. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.